The Navy is constantly at sea, but how much is it thinking about the neighboring fish? Well, the Coast Guard and Navy are teaming up to combat illegal fishing. The issue fits in with great power competition and climate change issues, especially as China pushes its own fishing vessels into gray zones in the ocean. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni got more when he spoke with Ocean Power Technologies CEO George Kirby and a member of the Naval Postgraduate School's Sea, Land, Air, Military Research Initiative, Ray Butner. We find ourselves, I think, at a really interesting time right now. Not just the United States, but the world is faced with the, the rise of a, a peer competitor or a great power competitor, as it's talked about in military circles a lot, in the form of the Chinese, who have a very different system of standards and ethics that will be enforced upon the world and are aggressively growing their economy. And this is, this is increasing the need for clear understanding of what's happening in the maritime domain around the world. Uh, recently, the Chinese fishing fleet showed up off the coast of the Galapagos Island, you know, one of the most sensitive geologic and natural areas on the planet today. And uh, the local folks have no ability to monitor uh, large fishing fleets moving through their areas. They're certainly not going to build a navy to go do those kind of things. And uh, we find that even around major countries like the United States and Canada and our allies in Europe. Um, as the, the resource hunt goes on, there is more and more competition around exclusive economic zones, uh, fishing areas, and then, of course, there's the threat of uh, organized crime, whether it be uh, human trafficking or drug smuggling. The coastal areas are seeing a lot of traffic, uh, and our ability to understand what's going on there, not just as the United States, but including the United States, is challenged. And if we're going to do this, one way you could do it, of course, is larger navies or coast guards and lots of vessels. They come with their own costs, both in human and resource costs and in the cost to the environment. Um, one way we can get around that is to be able to monitor these events using autonomous systems and to do that with sustainably powered or more sustainably powered systems would seem to be the right way that the United States and our allies can increase our awareness of what's going on in these environments, share that knowledge with the world for both research, economic, and military and national security uh, reasons, and do that in a way that is sustainable, uh, both in a physical and economic sense, affordable and sustainable, and sustainable in an environmental sense, where we are minimizing the risk to these uh, delicate areas. We can both monitor what happens in the Galapagos and not threaten it while we're monitoring it. Ray, could you just add a little bit more about how these fishing vessels affect certain climates? So we're not talking about six or seven boats going in an area and doing fishing. Even even commercial fishing boats at that scale is something that I, I, I'm not an expert on their environmental impact. But when you talk about dozens and hundreds of vessels, which is the way some of these uh, fishing fleets work now, you can go on Google and look at the South China Sea and just see where the Chinese are putting large numbers of these vessels there. The, the size and mass of the fleet itself is intimidating to uh, the countries in which they uh, are contesting the regions uh, near the Spratleys, for example. They, these fishing fleets uh, come with everything that any other ship comes with. They come with um, waste products that the folks on board, if they meet all the U.S. rules and laws of the Coast Guard, that, that never goes into the water. But even here, we have issues with uh, commercial activity, not always following all the regulations, even where there are some. The Chinese don't seem to follow these at all. And they also have all the leakage, the fuels, the oils, everything that goes with a big manned operation that goes at sea 
happens on a scale that most most Americans and most people don't think about because it happens offshore where they don't see it. But there are literally hundreds, there can be hundreds of fishing vessels in, in these fleets. And uh, again, all of the normal things that they do in the environment are happening. And, and our awareness of what's going on with these fleets is it happens out of sight and out of mind. So by using autonomous systems, uh, drones partnered with uh, ocean-powered buoys, for example, as we're talking here with the folks from OPT, um, that generate their energy in a sustainable fashion. So we're not putting large amounts of fuel or oil out into the ocean environment, even if something goes wrong. Um, these things will allow us to operate small autonomous vehicles, which are, again, are battery powered or, or much less likely to harm the environment. But they can provide the images, the pictures, the things that we need to motivate and understand policy in the ocean environment for both research and, as we talked about, commercial activity, and then in a national defense scenario as well. If it's, if it's a drug runner trying to, uh, you know, weave between the radar nets and come up the coast of California, um, having this type of system off the coast, which is minimally uh, risky to the environment, but allows us to have the awareness to be able to inter interdict these types of vessels before their uh, dangerous cargo gets ashore or before um, you know, these vessels cause other environmental uh, impact themselves uh, by being scuttled or sunk in the, in the ocean environment where nobody knows where they're at or what's going on. George, what are some of the options that the Coast Guard and Navy have to address this issue and to gather intelligence about this issue? Right now, it's been estimated that as much as 30% of global fish catch is, is unreported, and it's, it's been estimated to be an economic loss of as much as $50 billion globally. And, and that, that in and of itself sets aside the ecological damage that it's doing to our oceans. Um, the Navy, I'm sorry, the Coast Guard has indicated that illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing is one of the biggest threats to homeland security for the United States, uh, as well as globally, uh, a security threat as well. So what, what we can do is provide a physical platform in the water that generates power. Uh, envision a forward deployable over-the-horizon gateway node uh, for both topside and subsea maritime domain awareness. So we can physically put a maritime domain awareness solution, uh, you know, using radar, AIS, cameras, thermal and optical cameras on top of this power-generating buoy or platform uh, with high-speed, high-bandwidth communications, whether it's through 4G, if we're located next to uh, or within range of an asset that has that capability, or through satellite. Uh, and then in addition to that, the vision goes on where we can provide command, control, communications, even edge computing on location such that we can not only uh, provide that command and control for unmanned subsea surface or air assets, but also to help coordinate manned assets as well. So it's a, it's a very broad vision, but today we, uh, we are offering a maritime domain, domain awareness solution for topside 
and uh, it, it's a very real solution that we've offered in the oil and gas space, and, and we're also speaking with foreign governments about this as well, because this is a, a global problem that we're trying to address, IUU. Ray, could you talk a little bit about how these different networks of buoys and things like that might give intelligence to the United States, help them inform future strategy or future ideas on, on whatever they want to do about this issue? The way we've looked at it at the school is facilitating a discussion about the challenge. So this is, this is pre-acquisition. I'm not a contracting officer. The school's not trying to say what to buy. The school is trying to help educate the national security community and industry about their relative uh, match between emerging technologies such as uh, drones and uh, unmanned surface uh, vessels, very small ones, right, that could potentially be recharged by a system and allow us to increase our awareness of these environments and use modern commercial-style networking technology. So we're not creating uh, super expensive one-ofs for national security when we can rely on the expertise of our industry to create low-cost commercial solutions that can enhance awareness, again, not just for national security, but for a variety of purposes. And uh, so we're very excited that this uh, coalition, if you will, has formed to discuss these matters and to educate uh, both the government users. So the Coast Guard and the Navy uh, work closely. Um, we have students at the Naval Postgraduate School working on problems with the Coast Guard about our ability to understand what's happening on the coast of California, which is very long, very rugged. And um, so we're trying to figure out how do we increase our awareness there and do it in a smart, sustainable fashion. Naval Postgraduate School's Ray Butner and Ocean Power Technologies CEO George Kirby speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person. Perhaps it was 
uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led and I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.